Uh, Father, we're thankful to open your word together in this setting, in the company of brothers and sisters who love you and who love one another. And uh, we're thankful for this book that you are helping us to see. Uh, Will you enlighten our eyes? Will you open our hearts to its message today? Might you uh, truly uh, meet us in this story and help us to see what you have for us today that we might be changed and challenged and encouraged and transformed. Lord, make us like your son as we look at your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Job is God's best-selling book about how suffering reveals the most important aspects of our hearts and it reinforces the worth, the goodness, and the justice of God so that Satan's blasphemous accusations are thwarted and so that we might worship him and trust his goodness and submit to his righteous ways in all circumstances. And if you are just joining us, man, you, you are coming in in the fourth act of the play here. Um, so let, let me let me recap for you, okay? This is a wonderful book in the Bible. It's one of the oldest books. It was probably written at the time of the patriarchs, so Abraham and Isaac and, and those guys. Um, it's hard to understand in part because it's poetic and it's long and there's dialogue, and yet there is a message here unmatched in any other book in Scripture. Uh, so, so let me just kind of hit the overview for you, okay? There is this righteous, godly man whose name is Job. He's got a great family. He's got stuff. He's got money, great reputation in the community, a man of faith that walks with God. And a day, unbeknownst to Job, arises where God calls Satan, the adversary, calls his attention to Mr. Job. And in the midst of that, Satan challenges God regarding Job's faith in him. uh, Satan challenges God that Job only worships God because God's made his life so wonderful. And in a blasphemous, accusatory moment, Satan says, take all those things away from his life and he'll curse you to your face. God gives Satan permission to do that. And Job loses everything in one afternoon. He loses his ten children. He loses his uh, property. He loses most of his servants. He loses his animals. He loses what would have been his complete livelihood, his ability to support himself. And he maintains his faith. He worships God, though all is lost, demonstrating the worth of God. And then Satan comes again. And uh, says, well, he's still got his health. Let me take his health away. So God grants Satan permission to take his health away. And Job still maintains his faith. And then three friends arrive to minister to Job in his suffering and in his his affliction. And um, in the chronic nature of Job's suffering, he begins to lose his grip. And he spirals down into a deep depression where he curses the day of his birth. His friends try to console him, but their theology is bad. And as the dialogue goes on and on, as Job is banished from the city, sitting in the ash heap, uh, he gets to the point where he accuses God of wrongdoing because his suffering in his mind is unjust. And that's where we've that's where we've left off. That's where we've found ourselves. Now, um, I want to show you this diagram and uh, just to remind you of where we've been in all of this. And uh, Dave, I don't have a working clicker here, bud. Could you just advance that for me once? There we go. All right, we might have to do the old slide, please uh, thing here. So, kids, you, uh, talk to your parents about what that means. Um, so, so. And it's not on my screen here, so I'm just going to step here so I can kind of point you out. You need to understand that the book of Job is designed to help us to see the truth about three essential theological themes. The theme of worship, 
the theme of suffering and prosperity and the theme of, ju- the theme of justice. And, and the way the Holy Spirit brought this book together was to tie each of those themes to different characters in the book. So, for example, uh, the character in the book with the faulty view of worship is Satan, right? He thinks, you know, we only worship God because he makes our life good, right? And, and the challenge of the book is to see that that is a misguided approach to worship, isn't it? That we worship God because of who he is, his, his worth, his value, not because of the benefits that he gives us, although we're grateful for those things. The same thing, the faulty view of suffering is employed by the three friends. Remember, they have the vending machine version of theology. You know, God's like a vending machine. You know, you do what's right. God blesses you. You do what's wrong. God punishes you. And so they see suffering in Job's life, and they conclude there must be something uh, wrong. Job's doing some sin in his life. He's just not admitting it. So they spend all those chapters trying to get him to come out with it, the, the hidden sin that he's not wanting to talk about. And, of course, that that's wrong. Uh, a wrong view of suffering, that suffering is not always God's punishment for personal sin. And we saw that last time. And then the third theme, the theme of justice, uh, Job ultimately attacks God's justice, declaring that he is not right in the affliction that he's brought to Job. And, and of course, we realize that these are not ultimately just fun themes that we can say, hey, we, we, we got an A on our Sunday school test today with these themes, that all three of those themes, the, the reason that they're so important is that those three themes touch the character of God, don't they? When we think about worship, the question is, is God worthy of worship? Well, that's kind of important, isn't it? And, and when we see suffering, we think, well, is, is God still good in my suffering? Right? Is he still gracious? And, and justice, is God right? Is he, is he just? Does he always get it right, even when it doesn't seem like things are going the right way? So in, in, in a very specific way, all three of those themes help us see the character and nature of who God truly is. And that's what the book is really about. It's designed to give us a, a truer and accurate picture of who God is, especially, listen, especially when it's hard to see God when we're suffering. Okay, so that, that's the point of the book. And of course, Mr. Job's right there in the middle there because he is living at the intersection of all of those themes. Uh, God is using him and his life to demonstrate this. So we're going to pick up now our story. This is scene four in your notes there. Uh, and we're going to pick that up in chapter 32. Verse 1. Chapter 32, verse 1. And now we saw this last time. You remember last time we met the narrator? Now what's important about the narrator in the stories of the Bible? Do you remember? The narrator speaks God's perspective. So when you're reading about Abraham, if you're doing a Bible reading plan and you're in Genesis or Exodus somewhere right now, if you're going chronologically, um, if you're reading the stories of Jesus, if you're reading about um, what happens uh, with the kings or with the judges or the prophets, always tune in to what the narrator says. Because, uh, you know, an actual character in the book, we don't know whether we should believe what they're saying or not believe what they're saying, right? If what they're, what they're doing is a good example to follow or is a bad example. But, ah, when the narrator speaks, we need to pay attention. Because the narrator gives us God's perspective. He, the narrator speaks with a divine omniscience on the story. And so we saw, chapter 32, verse 1, if you want to look back at your Bible there in, in the book of Job, the narrator steps in as this scene comes to a close. And it says, these three men ceased answering Job. Why? Because he was righteous in his own eyes. We've seen Job's faith slide from faith in God and drift over now to a faith in himself. He is trusting in himself. He is declaring his innocence. He is self-righteous, as our narrator confirms here in our story. Okay? Now, verse 2. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned. Now, now stop right there. Who's this guy? I thought we had the scene, right? There's Job. He's outside the city. He's in the ash heap, right? He's been banished from the town. They don't want to get his infection. And the three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and, and, and Bildad, have come, and they're out there in the heap. Mrs. Job, we know, is somewhere around. Maybe she's back at the residence. Maybe she's out there too. But here the picture changes. And, you know, the picture we have in our mind in the biblical stories is very important, isn't it? Apparently, all along, there's been a fourth friend. And he showed up sometime between when the three friends arose and now. 
He's apparently been sitting there listening, taking it all in. He's been a kind of a fly on the wall the whole time. And he hasn't said anything, as we're going to find out in a minute, because he's younger than everybody else. Uh, this, this is the, the junior varsity friend. Uh, he's coming in here, the youth. But, but notice, his anger burns. Now, why, why is he so upset? Look at what it says here. It burned against Job because he justified himself before God. Now, remember, the narrator is still speaking. So the narrator is saying, Elihu is all, all wrapped around the axle here because Job is trusting in himself and, and is uh, declaring himself justified before God. And verse 3 tells us he's burnt, his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So they're condemning him, but they have not been able to bring a true diagnosis. And Elihu sees that. Verse 4, Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than him. Now, so a couple things I want you to see. Elihu's diagnosis is the same as the narrator's, which means, stay with me, Elihu has the right perspective. He has God's perspective on this story in terms of what's going on. And we know that because Elihu is the only character in the book whom God does not rebuke at the end. Okay, So we can trust his judgment here based on the narrator and based on that fact. Now, he, he's, he's not, uh, he hasn't spoken yet because he's younger. And we see that there in, in verse 4. He had waited, uh, and that was proper in that culture, not, not to speak um, you know, out of turn if there were other people that were older. Now, here's what I want you to see. If you miss everything else this morning, Elihu is the John the Baptist of this story. That's his function. Elihu is the John the Baptist of the book of Job. You say, what do I mean by that? What was the role of John the Baptist in the New Testament? He went before, right? He prepared the way for the Lord. Well, guess what Elihu is going to do? He's going to prepare the way for God, who's going to talk here in a few chapters. And just like John the Baptist, what, what, did, what did John the Baptist say when he came, by the way, when he came and started his ministry? What was the first thing he said? Repent. What did Jesus say when he started his ministry? Repent. Okay, you see that? He, he's saying a lot of the same things. And that's what Elihu's going to do. He's going to say a lot of the same things that God's going to say, but he's paving the way. He, Elihu is setting the table before the guest of honor walks into the room. Okay? That's his function. Now, he's waited to speak. In fact, it's funny. Look at chapter 32, verse 6. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years, and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I thought. I thought age should speak and increased years. And remember this. As best as we can tell, Job is probably in his 60s or 70s. Um, another verse tells us that the friends are older than Job's father. So they're probably in their 80s or 90s, maybe even over 100 so when you hear Elihu is younger, it might mean he's 50. Or it might mean he's a junior high student. We don't know. But he's younger, okay? And, and this is funny. He's going to stammer and stutter and repeat himself for a whole chapter. Chapter 32. We won't take time to read all that. Read it this afternoon. But he basically spends the whole chapter saying, I'm getting ready to tell, to tell you something. I'm getting ready to speak. And we say, well, what's that? I think he's nervous, frankly. You know, I mean, if you're going to correct your elders, you're going to correct this man of God. So I think he's nervous, and, and of course, I think he's also trying to, you know, be clear to these guys. He's trying to be respectful and not just, you know, coming out and doing that. But look at what he said. When he finally gets down to it, it's another chapter. Now we're down to chapter 33. Look at verse 8. He's been listening. Chapter 33, verse 8, And Elihu says, Surely you, talking to Job, Surely you, Job, have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words. Okay, so we're going to uh, meet Elihu here. And Dave, I might need you to advance it for me, please. There we go. So let's meet Elihu. That's what we're doing. Now, Elihu, <coughs> starting in verse 9, is going to summarize what he's heard Job say. Okay, so listen to, listen to Elihu's summary. Starting in verse 9. Now he's quoting Job here, okay? Here's his summary. He's going to quote Job. 
Quote, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent and there is no guilt in me. That's a pretty good summary, isn't he? Right? Job's saying, I'm, I'm innocent. I'm free of guilt. I'm without sin. Verse 10. Behold, he invents pretexts against me. Now, who's the he? Yeah, Job says God is inventing evidence against Job to condemn him, right? Verse 10, he counts me as his enemy. God considers Job his enemy in Job's estimation. Verse 11, he puts my feet in the stocks, meaning God is punishing Job through suffering, almost like somebody who is a criminal and has their their feet put in the stocks, End of verse 11. He watches all my paths, meaning God scrutinizes every way of Job so he can be sure to punish him as soon as he gets out of line. There it is. That is Elihu's summary. Now, how many chapters did we have to go through? And Elihu, in like three verses, sums it up. It's a good summary, isn't it? God's against me. God's my enemy. Um, I'm innocent, but he's punished me, and he's coming up, he's, he's manufacturing evidence against me to condemn me in Job's mind thinking about God. Now, I want you to see with that summary now the proper diagnosis, okay? Because Elihu has summarized Job's complaint. He's summarized the matter. Now, I want you to see... Elihu's diagnosis, and because he's speaking the perspective of God, we know this is an accurate diagnosis. Okay, you with me? Look at verse 12. Behold, let me tell you. Now this is Elihu now talking to Job. He summarized it, and now Elihu is responding to Job based upon what he's heard. Verse 12. Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. Wow. No, this isn't right, Job. Why are you not right in this, Job? Look at the end of verse 12. For God is greater than man. In one sentence. Actually, in one clause. It's not even a whole sentence. Elihu puts his finger on the problem. Job, have you forgotten who God is? Are you out of your mind? This is crazy. God is greater than you. Who do you think you are to accuse him, to condemn him? to argue with him, to contend with him, to stand in judgment of of him. It makes us think of what Paul says in Romans, right? Let God be found true, though every man on earth be found to be a liar. You know what Paul is actually saying? If we could bring together all of the millions of people that inhabit the planet, and with one voice they brought evidence condemning God, Paul is saying they would all be wrong. And let God be found true. And that's something of the sense of what Elihu is trying to help him to see. Now in suffering, one of the things that happens is we tend to turn inward, don't we? We tend to believe our misguided feelings. We saw that in Job's life last time. And we tend, listen, we tend to trust our judgment over what God has said. And what Elihu says is, you know how you get around that? Just stop for a minute and remember who on earth you're talking to. This is God. This is God. So on your notes there, the first thing he tells us is God is greater than man, right? God is greater than man. And we've got to remember that. that that's, that's the proper diagnosis. That's the answer. That's what these three friends should have been saying all along, and they got misguided because of their theology. Here's the bottom line. Job, you're wrong. You know why you're wrong? Because God is greater than you are. But there's a second thing he says. Notice this. Verse 13. Why do you complain 
against him, right? For God is greater than man, so why do you complain against him? And, and does your Bible say complain? What does your version say? Contend? Strive? Okay. There's actually a technical usage of this word that fits the context better. And, and contend or complain or strive, those are all good nuances. But used in a technical sense, it means to bring a lawsuit against. Now that fits the context better because for chapter after chapter after chapter, what has Job been saying? I want God to come down here so I can put him in court and bring a charge and acquit my name, right? And show that God is really guilty. And so Elihu's been listening to that. And he says, Job, are are you out of your mind? God is greater than you. So how can you possibly say you want to take him to court? Why do you complain against him? Why, why do you threaten a lawsuit? Now, watch this. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? What is Job's complaint? God isn't giving me an explanation for my affliction. And he owes me one. You feel like that sometimes? You're struggling? Lord, I want to know what you're doing. Well, here's what Elihu is saying. God doesn't owe us an explanation. He's greater than us. Who are we to bring a charge against him? And you know what the reality is, Mr. Job? God doesn't owe us an explanation. Now, what's the first question that you and I usually ask in suffering? Do you see the wisdom of this book? Because that's what we all do, right? Why? And, And actually, you know what? We're tempted to believe this. If we just knew why, that would solve everything. And you know what one of the graces of this book is? Not only does God not owe us an explanation, though we demand one from him, the reality is knowing why is not the silver bullet that it appears to be in our suffering. Okay? There are 261 questions asked in this book. And uh, we'll find out next week about how God handles those questions. But for now, I want you to see that God doesn't owe us an explanation. And really, an explanation is not what we need the most in our suffering. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever we tell him to do. Right? Is that what the verse says? Now, our Lord, our God is in the heavens, finish it, and he does whatever he pleases. You say, why does he get to do that? Because he's God and he's greater than you and me. Now, now let's just let's just think about that. We're demanding answers. We want to know why. We want to demand an answer. You know what that's like? Um, I'm, I'm going to talk to my friend uh, Levi Warren back there. Okay, hey bud, where are you? All right. So so let's let's say let's say that I tried to help Levi understand why there's light coming out of that thing up there. Okay, because this is what this is what it's like. If God were to give us an explanation, it's a bit like trying to explain something to a young child, isn't it? If I were to explain that everything's made up of atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, there are certain things you can do to manipulate those electrons so that they move around, they jump around, and you can actually move those things in mass quantities like those power poles do, and that that comes into a service. How are we doing, Levi? Are we doing well? Okay, you with me? So those electrons, when they come into a filament, little thin wire, that wire gets really, really hot, and in the presence of an incandescent gas, it glows! You got it? Actually, those are LEDs. Uh, Light-emitting diode. Light-emitting diode. It's a little teeny tiny semiconductor. You put the same little electrons feeding in it, and in in the actual unit itself, it propagates light. And now light is a part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's, it's, It's a part of the radio frequencies that our eyes detect. And You okay? 
That's why God doesn't give us an explanation sometimes. We couldn't handle it even if he did. And you know that if you've got kids or grandkids and, and you've had a moment where they're going, why, Dad? Why, Grandpa? And you're going, you know what? I could explain this to you, but it wouldn't help you. Because in that moment, what we need is not an explanation. We need to trust our Father. Right? And that, that's, part, that's part of what we're, we're supposed to see here. Now, we remember... In the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, God says this, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Drip down, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. And woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker. An earthenwell vessel among the vessels of earth? Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? What is it that causes us to demand an answer of God? What sort of corruption in our hearts that we cry, we cry out as clay pots to the potter himself, you owe me an explanation. It's our pride, isn't it? It's the same pride of the angel who said, I will ascend to heaven. I will make myself like the Most High. It is the same pride that said to Eve, did God really say... It is the same pride that Adam and Eve employed in that garden when they said, oh, maybe God isn't really being good to us. Maybe we know something that he hasn't considered. Maybe we know better than him. And as Paul unfolds us, unfolds it for us in Romans chapter 1, that that, that corrupt, prideful, arrogant disposition is the operating system of fallen humanity where the creature would stand in judgment of his creator. God does not owe us an explanation. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. And this is not just an indictment on Job. This is an indictment on all of mankind because this is what we all do. Now, footnote to that. If God doesn't owe us an explanation, what's this? It's grace. <laughs> it's grace that God tells us some things, isn't it? It's grace that God discloses himself. It's grace that God, di- God does give us some insight on suffering in terms of what he's doing. It's grace that God does unfold for us his plan. So so let's not demand an answer of God that He has not given. Let's be thankful for the gracious answers that He does give in our suffering. And as I said, an explanation is not what we really need the most in suffering. Okay, We'll talk about that next week in terms of what we really need to do. Now, With that diagnosis, with that diagnosis, thirdly, I want you to hear God's purposes in suffering, okay? Hear God's purposes in suffering. Are you with me? You seen how this is working? Elihu shows up, he speaks God's perspective. He accurately summarizes Job's situation. He brings a proper diagnosis, right? The proper diagnosis is God is greater than man. He doesn't owe me an explanation. Now, Watch what happens next. Hear God's purpose in suffering. Chapter 33, verse 15. Actually, we'll start in verse 14. Then Elihu says this, Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices. We go, what is he talking about here? You remember that whole section last week where Job is demanding an answer and God is silent? He's demanding an answer and God is silent. And Elihu says, Actually, God is talking. 
He is speaking. And we go, what? What does he mean? Well, verse 15, he's going to give here two ways that God is actually speaking in this situation. Verse 15, in a dream, in a vision of the night. And, and, and of course, in this day in Revelation history, now this is the patriarch period, right? This is before, we don't have even the start of the Old Testament books yet at this time in history. So how did God communicate to mankind? Well, lots of different ways. That's what Hebrew says, right? In many portions, in many ways. And one of the ways is through a dream or a vision, right? We, we see that, for example, in Joseph, the life of Joseph, the patriarch, where he revealed himself in a dream uh, in, in that situation. We, we see uh, visions and dreams in other characters. Now, this was not something that every believer had every day. I don't get the idea that believers in the Old Testament had dreams and visions of God every day. No, no, no. It was an occasional thing. But that's sometimes how God spoke. Okay? When sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, verse 16, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. Verse 17, that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over in Sheol. Okay, so... so he says God speaks in dreams and visions to some people in that time. But now he's going to give us the second way that God speaks. And this is what Job has missed. Look at verse 19. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones. What's he saying? God is speaking. And he's speaking through your suffering. You see that? That's what it says, right? Man is also chastened with pain in his bed, and that too is God's communication. That is God's speaking. You say, well, not speaking like you know a, a, a verbal voice from heaven, but in terms of what the suffering is intended to do, God's communicating. Okay. Now, now watch this. Watch how this works. Man is chastened with his bed. Uh, with pain in his bed, with unceasing complaint in his bones, verse 20, so that his life loathes bread, his soul's favorite food, his flesh wastes away from sight, and his bones which were not seen stick out. Remember, that's Mr. Job, right? He's emaciated. he's, He's skin and bones, right? He's not interested even in his favorite food. His flesh is wasting away. Verse 22, then his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. Now, Why would God speak in suffering to bring a person to the edge of the pit of life itself? Look down at verse 29. Look down at verse 29. Behold, God does all these oftentimes with men. Why? In order to bring back his soul from the pit that he might be enlightened with the light of life. Do you see it? God is speaking in our suffering so that we're not thinking about our favorite food. We're not thinking about who wins the Super Bowl this afternoon. We're, we're not thinking about uh, health and, and we're not thinking about uh, our, our bank account and all that. We're, we're, we're clinging to life itself so that we'll see our need for God's rescue. Do you see that? He's going to take us to the edge of the pit in order to save us from it. Now, now that's so important to see this. Job's suffering is not punitive, it's preventative. You see that? It's not punishment for sins engaged in before his suffering began, but it's preventative. Listen very closely. The suffering itself will bring to light areas where Job needs to grow that were not previously understood so that they can be addressed. You see that? It's not that Job had some sin and then God said, okay, I'm going to afflict you. God said, I'm going to afflict you because there are things in your heart, Job, there are things in my heart that I don't see that God wants to bring to the surface so that he can help me with those things. Okay, so so on your notes, we'll call this the preventative use of suffering. The preventative use of suffering. Suffering exposes and helps us deal with areas of life that will lead us to destruction if not addressed. That's what's going on here. It's the, the preventative use of suffering, or for you medical people, we call, we call it the prophylactic use of suffering. It's the same idea, right? You know, when I go to my dentist and the bill says prof- prophylaxis, translated into normal English means he cleaned my teeth so that I don't get cavities and my teeth fall out. It's preventative, right? 
uh, you change your, your, you rotate your tires so that your tires don't wear out prematurely. It's preventative, right? Uh, and, and what a, what a tragic week. We, we, we remembered this last week not just one space shuttle disaster, but two. Monday, January 28th was the anniversary of the Challenger blowing up in 1986. And just a couple of days ago was the anniversary of the Columbia disintegrating right over the skies of Dallas, Texas back in 2003. And you know what's, what's crazy about both of those accidents where uh, astronauts died? In both cases, the accidents could have been prevented. There were engineers who knew about the O-ring problem on the solid rocket boosters that caused the Challenger to blow up when the rings were compromised because of the sub-freezing temperatures the night before the launch. And there were engineers who knew about the foam tile that blew off the external tank and put a hole in Columbia's wing, allowing the uh, hot gases of re-entry to enter and literally disintegrate the, the wing, turning it into a flaming fireball over the Texas skies. And that's sad. Right? Because those things could have been prevented. And what the Bible is telling us here is that God uses suffering as a preventative measure so that we don't end up self-destructing, exploding, disintegrating in the sky of our spiritual lives. Now, if you were paying attention... What's the area that Job doesn't see that needs to be addressed? What is it? Okay, look back at verse 17. I guess you missed it. Look back at 17. What is it? His pride. And haven't we seen that? He's shaking his hand at heaven. God, you're wrong. Come down here so I can take you to court. And and I am righteous in my own eyes. There's no sin in me and I'm innocent. And I want an explanation. It's his pride. I know better than God. God owes me an explanation. And you know, that helps us because in our own suffering, what what we ought to listen to are the lying lyrics of our own pride. That's often what God is doing. And those, those manifestations of pride will bring us down to our own spiritual destruction if they're not addressed. Now, now listen very closely. What does pride sound like when you're suffering? This is one of the reasons we don't see it's there. We, we, don't, we don't know the voice of our pride like we should, especially in suffering. Okay, so let me give you some examples. What does pride sound like when we're suffering? I'll give you a couple. No one understands my situation. And that's why those people over there that are trying to help me, they can't help me. I'm alone. I'm all by myself in this. Life isn't worth it if it's going to be like this. There's no hope for me. God doesn't care. God doesn't love me. We need to acquaint ourselves with the voice, the lying voice of our own pride in suffering so that we can detect it and repent of it quickly. That's a a good exercise. Ask yourself this question. What do I tend to tell myself in suffering that's actually a manifestation of my pride rather than my faith? Maybe walking with God just isn't worth it. You hear that in Psalm 73, right? Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Now, What's really going on in Job's suffering? Let's pull all this together now, okay? In order to deal with his own pride, God has to take him to the edge of the pit in order to rescue him from it. You see that? That's what he's doing. He's setting this thing up. It's preventative. So so here it is, here it is. Job's suffering is a means of his own rescue. And so is yours. And so is mine. That's what God's trying to help us to see. Now, how is suffering a means of his own rescue? Look at chapter 33. Look at verse 23. 
Elihu's speaking and he says, if there is an angel as a mediator for him. Now, now that word angel, it's just the normal word for messenger. It probably doesn't mean angel like we think of angels because actually when the book of Job references angels, it usually calls them the sons of God. So it probably means here a messenger, a go-between. So, so Elihu is thinking, he says, what if, what if there was a go-between? What if there was a, a messenger, a, a mediator? One out of a thousand, right? So this would have to be a very special person. What if there was a messenger to act as a mediator? What would that mediator do? Well, look at the next verse. To remind a man what is right, what's true. And then that mediator would go to God, right? And he would say this. Deliver him from going down to the pit, for I have found a ransom. Huh. So Elihu says, there might be this mediator, and he would, he would tell Job the truth, and he would go to God out of grace and say, deliver him because I have a ransom. And we say, what's a ransom? And when you think of ransom, do you think what I think? You know, some bad guys have kidnapped somebody, and, and you're, they're demanding a ransom to get the people back, right? That's what I think of. But, but the biblical word for ransom here is not, doesn't mean that. Um, I'll say the word and maybe some of you will know it, okay? It's the word kafir. Related to the word group kafar. Or probably the word you've heard kippur. As in yom kippur, which is what? The day of Atonement. Huh. So, so this is a word that belongs in Leviticus. It's here. We go, what? What, what is it? What, is, what does this word mean? This ransom. It means a payment that is offered as a substitute to atone for another. Huh. Okay. Verse 25. This is the mediator talking. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. And then, now watch this. Verse 26, the person in suffering, say Job, responds. Then he, the person in suffering, will pray to God and God will accept him. Why would God accept him? Because a payment has been made. Because atonement has been granted. And look what it says, that he may see his face with joy and he, watch this, he, God, may restore his, God's righteousness to man. So God's righteousness is going to come to the sufferer? Huh, okay. Verse 27, and then he, the sufferer, will sing to men. He'll run around to all his friends and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right, and it is not proper for me. The NIV gets it a little better. I have sinned and perverted what is right, and I did not get what I deserved. This sufferer is now accepted by God and he's running around singing, telling all his friends I've sinned, but God did not give me what I deserve. Verse 28, he has redeemed my, my soul from the pit and my life shall see the light. Verse 29, behold, God does all these things oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of light. What on earth is going on here? This sounds like Romans. Woo. Look back at the text. Uh, where are we? Look back at this. So what if there was an angel, some messenger from God who would act as a mediator, a, a go-between, okay? So we got mediator. And he would remind man of the truth, right? What is right? So we got truth. And who should give grace to him. So we got grace. And um, who would deliver him from going down to the pit. We got deliverance now. And verse, uh, the next thing, because a ransom had been found, a payment offered as a substitute to make atonement for another. So we got ransom and atonement language now. And then the man would pray to God and God would accept him. So now we have acceptance. And then God would restore his righteousness to man, God's righteousness coming to him. 
you could call that justification if you wanted to, because that's really what the word means. And then there's a prayer of confession to God. I have sinned and perverted what is right. That's confession. Then God says he has redeemed his soul from the pit. That's redemption. In order to bring enlightening so that he will see the light of life. Wow. Oh, this is good. You know, we are a Lego family. Are you a Lego family? Do you do Legos with your grandkids or your kids? We are a Lego family. And I remember, you know, my kids are older now, so now, you know, they tear it apart and they build it and it's done like in an hour. But you remember when they were little and they would get the brand new set for their birthday and they would rip all the bags out and then there's pieces all over the ground and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, Dad, how do we make this look like the picture on the box? (laughs) What Mr. Elihu just did is he just ripped open the bag of redemptive Legos and dump them all over the floor. That's what he did. And this is, this is so cool. As salvation history unfolds, culminating in the coming of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, we see the work of redemption come together to completion in all its glory. In other words, when we take all the theological Lego pieces that he just dumped on the floor and put them all together, we get a picture of Jesus. That's the picture on the box, isn't it? Now, Elihu doesn't understand that fully. Job doesn't understand that fully. But, oh, we who benefit from knowing the New Testament, we know how the story ends, don't we? So we can look back on that and say, oh, I know where this is going. And, and it's, guys, it's, it's so important. I mean, I mean, just, just look back at this, okay? Look at, look at how Jesus is the picture. A mediator, right? Well, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 says, right? There's the truth, and there's grace. John 1 tells us that Jesus came and he was full of what? Grace and truth. Uh, the one that comes to deliver from the pit. Romans chapter 11 says, the deliverer will come from Zion and all Israel will be saved. We got atonement and ransom. Uh, the Bible says Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is, this is awesome. Uh, acceptance. Uh, Romans 15 tells us to accept one another just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. We've got righteousness or justification. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Redemption. Uh, the Bible tells us in him, Jesus, we have redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's Ephesians chapter one. And then we have this thing, light of life. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world and he who follows me will not, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The picture on the box is Jesus. Now, that, you gotta see that. That's one of the functions of the Old Testament. The Old Testament puts theological Lego pieces all over the place. So that you and I will learn important theological themes. I mean, why, why would God say to the families, His people that He loved, hey, come here and kill these animals? Just once a year? No, like every day. Like every time you sin. And so you're walking there with, with Levi and Caleb and Josh and, and Maddie and they go in and, and your dad's slaughtering animals over it. And dad, why are we killing the lamb? Why are we killing the goat? Son, be, be, because your sin is so serious before a holy God that someone has to die in your place. Their blood has to be shed in your place. And we have festivals and, and, and rituals and all these things in the Old Testament that, that Colossians says is a shadow. Of the one to come, right? Like, for example, the, that, 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 that horrible night called Passover where, where the pet lamb, unblemished, who's, who's become a part, as it were, of the family is slaughtered at twilight, the blood put over the, and the family's going, dad, another family, in the blood, and it's ugly. Why, why, why? They're, those are theological Lego pieces putting, put it all over the Bible so that one day when John the Baptist looks out and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it all makes sense. And that's what's going on here. Read your Old Testament looking for theological Lego pieces and you will better understand and appreciate both the character of God and the work of his redemption. And that's what Elihu does. He's the John the Baptist of the Old Testament. 
Now, Elihu envisions this messenger acting as a mediator between God and sinful man, an angel or someone like that. But we know as salvation history unfolds, God sends forth his son who for a time was made what? Lower than the... Interesting, huh? So that he could become the true and final mediator between God and men. So so you're on to me. Embrace the gospel solution. There's your blank. Embrace the gospel solution. Now, in suffering, God often pushes us to the edge of the pit because he wants to save us from it. And suffering is God's means of our own rescue to save us from ourselves and ultimately from God's judgment. Why? Because suffering pushes us to see our need for this. We need a savior. We need a mediator. We can't do this on our own. Can I just give you a a ministerial footnote for a minute? Do you know someone who's suffering right now? Do you know what God's doing? Can you come alongside that friend and help them to see that what God is speaking, what God is communicating to them in their suffering is that they can't do this on their own? They need someone to help them. And not just with the the physical affliction, they need someone to deal with their own heart that is being pushed to the surface through the work of suffering. And that's one of the ways we can help people in suffering is help them to see they need a savior. They need a mediator. They need a, they need a God walking alongside them. They can't do this on their own. And then introduce them to the Lord Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. So if you are willing to accept it, this is the gospel according to Elihu. Or we might say the gospel according to the book of Job. It is probably the oldest and most comprehensive explanation of the gospel in the whole Bible. Now, could it be, could it be that the very suffering that you are fighting against right now is actually God's very means of rescuing you to help you to see that this is what we need. That this gospel, this Savior, is who we really need most of all in our suffering. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this hidden jewel in the book of Job. Man, it's been here the whole time. And we thank you for how it reminds us of redemption and our great Savior, Mr. Job and Mr. Elihu and his friends. They didn't know the full story like we do. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the New Testament. Thank you that we have more responsibility, really, for these things because we have the fullness of your inspired word. Lord, help us not to fight against the things that you're doing and suffering that are actually a means of our own rescue. And help us to draw near to the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant, the one mediator between God and men, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're so thankful for him, for how in your kindness and grace you use suffering to draw us to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.